this episode of Lifespan, we talked to Bernhard Debatin, a journalism professor who's had three different types of cancer in the last 16 years. Doctors in Germany diagnosed and treated the first of those cancers, physicians in the U.S. the other two. Bernhard shares with us the mental and physical trauma of the experience and treatment of cancer, as well as how the experience of serious illness can be very different depending on the structure of the healthcare system designed to prevent and treat illness and how the broader culture views a particular illness. In the summer of uh, 2004, we were in Berlin, and on August 19th, in the afternoon, I started to um, feel as if I was coming down with a cold, and uh, my, my muscles started to ache, and just felt really weird. And within a couple hours, from like 3 o'clock to 5 o'clock, it went from feeling weird to feeling extremely painful, and um, it got so bad that we went to the emergency room at the Humboldt University Hospital Charité, and they didn't know what to do with me. It was really the worst pain I've ever had in my whole life. And this was very sudden onset. Very sudden onset within a couple hours and with no clear reason why and how. And they first didn't even want to treat me because they didn't know what it was and they were afraid to give me any painkiller or anything like that because they were concerned that that would make things worse or who knows. And when you're talking about pain, where? Where in your body? Pretty much everywhere, mostly in my limbs, um, my shoulders, my back, uh, the legs, the arms, any place where you have muscles. And as I later found out, it was actually the nerves that were being attacked by my immune system. So what happened was that I was experiencing a very serious and sudden onset of a neuropathy, basically something where the immune system starts to eat up the insulation of the nerves. And it turned out then once I was in the hospital and they started to do tests and x-ray, they realized that I had a massive tumor in my chest behind the sternum about five by five centimeters, which is two and a half inches, I guess. And that it was a Hodgkin's lymphoma. And uh, with Hodgkin's, it is actually a known thing that some people develop this type of a neuropathy because the cancer apparently produces some toxins that can trigger this. But doctors didn't have a diagnosis until Bernhard had been in the hospital a few days. At this point in his story, he was still in the emergency room, and no one knew what was wrong with him. It was so bad that I literally asked my wife to shoot me. They gave me some kind of opioid, and I fell asleep, and next morning I woke up still in pretty bad pain. They've admitted you by now. Yeah, they admitted me. Basically, the neuropathy continued during the night, and and you have to literally imagine this as uh, the immune system destroying the sheathing, the insulation of the nerves, and that is not only really painful, it also leads to dysfunction of the nerves. And uh, in my particular case, my radial nerve and my ulna nerve, which are the two nerves that go into the hand and are responsible for you being able to pull up your fingers and your wrist, they got completely destroyed and never recovered. Um, Other nerves were 
seriously affected, but they did recover. For instance, I couldn't walk, couldn't even get up from a chair because the long muscles in my upper legs were just not working um, because the nerves were paralyzed. That came back after maybe four weeks or so. And my, my right shoulder was paralyzed for six, seven months and very, very slowly came back, really slowly, uh, with a lot of physical therapy. But apparently, I mean, the question is always how much damage is there, and if it's not completely damaged, it can recover and can regrow and rebuild. Nobody knew what was going on. At first, they suspected it was an infection. And doctors suspected it was an infection because a year or two earlier, Bernhardt had exhibited some of the symptoms of Lyme disease. Looking back, though, after the physicians in Germany diagnosed Hodgkin's lymphoma, it became evident the symptoms Bernhard had had indicating Lyme disease were probably symptoms of the cancer. There's a good chance he never had Lyme disease. I did have some skin issues that looked very similar to what is called a bullseye rash that people get with Lyme disease, but the oncologist said it's something that can happen, too, with with this type of cancer. So they're taking, obviously, a very thorough history. And they were testing all sorts of things. It took about three days until they did an X-ray. They did some other testing first, mostly blood tests. They also established that it was not infectious, uh, at least not the type of infections you can see easily in a, in a blood panel. And once it became clear after they t- did the X-ray and saw this mass that shouldn't be there, um, I got moved into the cancer ward, and they, then everything changed because from that point on, it was, it, it was basically dealt with as, okay, it's a, can- a case of cancer, and I need a specific treatment for it. Bernhard was in the hospital for about a month. The cancer diagnosis was established relatively quickly, but only on the level of we now know it's a cancer and we suspect it's a lymphoma. Next thing that happened is they were trying to get biopsies. And so I had two failed attempts of doing a needle biopsy through my esophagus. Are you still heavily sedated? Through You're still in pain. I'm still in pain. I'm still, I, they, this was actually, I think, at the end of the first week when they did that. And that was also the time when they basically said, we cannot continue to give you the heavy-duty fentanyl-style opioids because you will become addicted, which, of course, was kind of horrible because the pain was so bad. I couldn't sleep at night. Even though Bernhard now had a diagnosis, and that was a relief, he ran into new developments in the German healthcare system that affected the course of his care. They were actually switching in Germany and in that particular hospital, too, to um, an RCM, a Responsibility Center Management System. And as long as I was on the infectious disease station, they didn't want to give me expensive medication uh, because, um, you know, even if it gets paid by me, it still goes against their overall budgeting. And so I would have needed, and I did get ultimately IVIG, which is an immune globulin uh, medication that helps with these kind of uh, neurological conditions. And it's actually known to stop the process. 
but it's you need like I forgot like five or six injections over five or six days, and each of them is a thousand dollars. So it took a while and a fair amount of negotiation between my neurologist and the infectious disease people to actually allow that. And by the time they did it, I think a lot of the damage was already done. I was trained as a classical guitar player, and I played guitar a lot. And from one day to the next, this was all gone. So it was pretty rough. But on the other hand, this at that time, this was my my smallest concern, given that I knew I had cancer and given that I had all this pain. Even with the discovery of the tumor and then a diagnosis, doctors were having trouble performing a biopsy. Bernhard referred to the failed attempts to biopsy his tumor without anesthesia as medical torture. The first two attempts uh, weren't successful, and so then they said, okay, we have to go through your lung from the back with a, an X-ray-guided process where they try to go through the lung and then get into the tumor and take samples. The problem with Hodgkin's lymphoma is that the cancer tumors that it forms are actually mostly empty. There's a lot of air and like fluffy stuff there, so it's hard to get a proper sample. Anyway, the second one was successful, but it also punctured my lung. You suddenly can't breathe properly and you feel how your lung collapses and it's just it's just something that is very, very disturbing. And I think people can probably tell from your accent, you are German, but you had worked for many, many, many years in the United States. So you were just visiting, you were visiting Germany. And the German healthcare system is based on being a worker and being a resident, which you were not at the time. Right. Explain how that worked in terms of payment. Yeah, that was another complication that was actually not easy to negotiate. The way this worked was that we had to prepay the treatment. So we, at any given time, we had to have always about 10,000 euros liquid. He had health insurance through his employer in the United States, and eventually his U.S. health insurer paid him back for his care in Germany. But in the meantime, he had to pay the German healthcare system up front, in cash, before every treatment. We also lost a fair amount of money due to, like, currency changes. Because that was the time when the euro became pretty uh, powerful compared to the dollar. Even though the overall cost of his illness was much less in Germany than it would have been in the U.S., he still had to argue constantly with his U.S. insurer to receive reimbursement, while he's still in a German hospital being treated. They would fight all sorts of things, um, including like claiming that certain medication that I got uh, wasn't allowed under the American protocol. Um, and so we had to, uh, and a lot of this, almost all of that actually was my wife doing because I was in no position to do anything. Um, so she dealt with all the financial stuff and, uh, you know, many, many phone calls to the insurance company trying to figure out how to, you know, get our money back. It's one of the ironies of one of the many ironies of healthcare in the US that when you are in the biggest crisis, you're having to get on the phone with your insurance company and negotiate with them. Um, I heard one prominent doctor who was very big on uh, universal healthcare in the US saying that insurance companies in the US are in the business of denying you care, figuring what they're going to deny and mm -hmm. what they'll what they'll pay for. Yes. And it can be trivial stuff. For instance, the treatment I got is called Biacop. 
which is a, it's an acronym, bunch of letters for the various uh, ingredients, uh, the cancer drugs that, that you get. And there is one ingredient, the name of which I can't come up with right now, but which has been around for like 50 or 60 years. And that's the one that they were fighting just because the protocol that they had developed in Berlin was different from the one that they use here, which is an old protocol. And this medication wasn't even very expensive. It was actually one of the cheaper cancer drugs, you know, and they, they still were fighting it as if, you know, people were basically doing something wrong. This is an interesting aspect of medicine that many Americans don't know. There's a real nationalism in medicine. And and it's very true that different countries treat the same illness in very different ways. Mm -hmm. Even if it works better in one country, other countries are very slow to adopt it because of nationalism in medicine. And being sick in Germany was difficult for many other reasons. Bernhard is German, but Germany wasn't home anymore. We had the apartment, which was great. But we also had two small children. My older son was just turning five, and my younger son was um, barely two years, not even two years old. My wife had to schlep around those children all the time. We didn't have a car. Berlin has good public transportation, but it's not well set up for uh, for a buggy or you know um, any anything like that where you push around your children. The hospital where I was, they didn't have an elevator or escalator when you get out of the subway. So she always had to hope that some friendly person would be there to help her to carry things up the stairs. A lot of it was on my wife, who had to deal with the finances, who had to deal with the children, who had to deal with the emotional ballast that comes with that. The close family members, they're often ignored, and everyone is paying attention to the person who is very ill. In many, many ways, um, it's emotionally incredibly just exhausting. I can hardly tell you how much everybody was exhausted from this, you know, not just me. I was hospitalized in August 2004 and for about four weeks came out, um, started my first round of, uh, of chemotherapy. I had a total of six rounds, so distributed over six months. Uh, the first three ones were this new, fairly aggressive um, chemo that they had developed there. But in November of 2004, I came down with a very, very dangerous, life-threatening pneumonia and spent 10 days in the ICU, two of which I have hardly any memory of because um, I was really borderline dead at that point. I had like 60% oxygen in my blood, uh, which is sort of Mount Everest kind of condition, so to speak. They were giving me blood transfers and um, and plasma to boost up my oxygen. It was like that desperate. Let's talk uh, briefly about physician-patient communication. Because in Germany, you had a, a particularly callous physician treating you. Tell, tell us that story. When I was in the ICU um, and I was doing really badly, I, I was at the point when everybody believed I was going to die, including myself, um, this doctor shows up who I had never seen before and uh, had my chart in his hands and a, and a nurse with him. And he looked at me and looked into my eyes. I was lying there. I was really weak. I could hardly talk looked into my eyes as if he was going to talk to me. And then he said, as he looks into my eyes, 
Well, if this doesn't get any better, we have to put him into an artificial coma. And then he left. I started to cry immediately. There was nobody there except a person who was actually in an artificial coma. My bad neighbor <laughs> was a person who was in a coma and uh, a ventilator. And again, I know enough about these things that I know one thing you really want to avoid is being put on a ventilator and in a coma because people on ventilators unfortunately very often die just from the infection that comes with a ventilator. You know, I was feeling so horribly bad and here comes this person who talks to me by not talking to me and using third person as if I don't exist. There was one night when I was in the intensive care unit, I thought I was dying and I went through a couple of stages, including the stage where you feel very deep sorrow. So I was I was lying there and basically thinking, I'm this is it, I'm dying. And toward morning I was slowly, slowly I felt something else. And it was this pull that's hard to describe that said, you can't die because you have two little children. And it was an incredibly forceful thing. And it started very slowly, like a tiny little voice, and it became stronger and stronger. And I think until today, I think, had that not happened, I would have died that night because I was so out of energy. I was, I had lost my will to live. I had lost everything. I was ready to die. I didn't even feel any regret over it. Um, I just felt like that's, that's what's happening. You, you know? needed something outside of yourself yes. to get through it at that yeah. point. And it was really this feeling, I cannot leave my children alone. It, it was really the turning point. And it was the turning point that really was due to the children, which is an amazing thing. After Bernhard and his family came back to the U.S., he underwent further treatment. When we came back to the United States at the end of February of 2005, I saw my new oncologist, and then I had a month of radiation, and that concluded the treatment, and it was successful. You stayed in Germany for about seven months. Mm -hmm. um, and then when you came back here, did they have anything to say about your treatment in Germany? Were they interested? Was there a different protocol? Yeah, here? and <laughs> this is a funny thing, too. Uh, I was lucky. There was a doctor who was specialized in Hodgkin's lymphoma. So she was actually familiar with that protocol and was pretty impressed that they did this new um, protocol. And she was also very... Just a really thorough, good doctor, took a lot of time and all that. So I was pretty happy with it. Uh, although <laughs> an interesting experience I had was with the radiation. The first radiologist I saw basically wanted to do a full torso radiation and a really high-level radiation. And I was like, I don't want this. And I've, you know, I... I'm pretty educated when it comes to medicine, partly because I've worked on medicine ethics myself, but also because I've had a lot of weird things in my life and I'm pretty used to reading research. And I knew a fair amount about radiation and the side effects of radiation. And 
I know it's really important to minimize that. For instance, if you do full torso radiation, the likelihood that your heart gets damaged is extremely high. And so you may not die from the cancer, but you certainly die from a heart condition then. And so I was like, nope, I don't want to have that. And that prompted the radiation oncologist in the U.S. to characterize Bernhard as uncooperative. The radiation oncologist even wrote a letter to Bernhard's primary oncologist, the doctor who had been impressed with Bernhard's care in Germany, complaining that he was not willing to accept the recommended treatment. It was very strange. And then I found a different radiologist who basically was like, yeah, totally, we can do this. We just try to get it as focused as possible. We can build a protective device that protects your heart during the radiation, and we can keep it as low as, as, as it needs. And, and that's what we did. Even from the relatively low amount of radiation I received, I have until today serious side effects from that. I, I have acid reflux problems because my esophagus and the muscle that closes the stomach uh, got damaged. And I also have a mild aneurysm of my aorta because that could not be protected. And it, as a probably as a result of the radiation, it started to get enlarged. It's fortunately stable and doesn't seem to grow anymore. And it's relatively mild, so it's not life-threatening, but I mean, it shows you what happens, you know. The side effects of radiation are never trivial. This brings us to the summer of 2007, when you have uh, another bout with a different cancer. Yeah, so I actually just went to, went for a normal checkup with uh, my urologist, and I mentioned that I had back pain. And he was like, hmm, that's interesting. Maybe you should check your prostate a little bit more carefully. And I was like, what does the prostate have to do with back pain? And he was like, well, sometimes this type of back pain that you describe is an indicator for prostate cancer. And sure enough, came back with a cancer diagnosis. So I had early prostate cancer, fortunately, early enough that it hadn't migrated. Bernhard opted for surgery because the center in the U.S. that had finished successfully treating the Hodgkin's lymphoma had a new system for treating prostate cancer. Which is called the Da Vinci system. That's a computer-guided robotic surgery system with which you can do this type of surgery without destroying the nerves. And that's really important because before that, a prostate surgery typically meant that people ended up incontinent and also without any sexual function. And with that new technology, they can basically work around the nerves. It's less invasive. But I have to say, it was still a pretty serious surgery. It took me about a year to recover completely from it. Even the non-invasive stuff is still pretty rough, you know. Non-invasive is a euphemism in some ways, you know. So when you say recovery, what, what were some of the, what was your debilitation? What, what, what were some of the things you had to overcome as you were, were recovering? So some of it was, at the beginning in particular, just pain and discomfort and um, just learning how to deal with the situation. Uh, you have to retrain your muscles too because the prostate usually takes most of the responsibility for 
keeping the bladder closed or opening. So you have to retrain your bladder muscle and your Kegel exercises and stuff like that. Bernhard was happy with the American hospital where he was treated. The hospital specializes in cancer care, and it was the same institution that years earlier had finished treating his Hodgkin's lymphoma when he returned from Germany. Very, very good hospital in terms of patient care and bedside manners. Um, They're really good at that. They take time. They explain pretty well. But there were also things that did not go well. There is zero support with how do you get back in a somewhat normal life. You're on your own. There's all this attention paid to you when you're sick, but then once you're healing, almost no follow-up. Yeah. just as you describe, especially yeah. when they feel like, okay, we did our job, no more cancer, we're done. Yeah, it's all about fixing people and pushing them back into the work world. I was just so busy trying to feel normal again and trying to function, because that's what everybody tells you too, that I didn't notice how much I felt broken and damaged and emotionally strained and down. Bernhard pointed out that there is a lack of attention to the emotional effects of cancer, particularly in the American healthcare system. I did have a pretty serious depression after my first cancer, and that had to do with two things mostly. One was the trauma from Having been in the ICU and almost dying, I actually went through some of the stages that people go through when they die. And and um, so it was kind of a near-death experience and very traumatic. But as long as you're fighting cancer, you have no time to deal with it. And when I, when I was done with the radiation, I suddenly fell into this hole and like I didn't have to fight anymore. And it's almost like the purpose went away. And I had a really, really hard time to restart my life. I felt like it's nothing matters. I was crying a lot. I was staring into like the air. I was like nothing, nothing felt right. Uh, nothing had any meaning. It was pretty horrifying. I was really in a very bad place. And I did some very good therapy combined with some chemicals, uh, antidepressants, which I actually didn't care for. Um, I was glad when I could get rid of those, but the therapy was very helpful, but it was a behaviorally oriented therapy, which in itself is also very much about making you function again. And so there was actually very little attention paid to the emotional side of things, and most of it was really just trying to get me back on track. And it was successful, and I was glad that it was successful. But looking back today, I must say that this was really one of the big problems, too. It's partly also the cancer ideology that exists here, which is um, informed by military metaphors. You are a survivor, you're a soldier who fights and it's a battle. It's a battle, and you have to be a hero, and either you die heroically or you survive heroically. But surviving and being depressed or anxious or angry or unhappy, uh, there's no room for that. Why aren't you happy when you survived cancer? You won. Right, and, and so being happy, being unhappy or being depressed is actually like you violate the code of 
ethics of the military fight, you the, know. The war on cancer. <laughs> yeah. At the end of 2015, I started to meditate a lot and have been doing meditation since then. And that has been a very helpful and, and healthy thing for me to do. And I've had a number of really amazing insights during meditation. And one was about three weeks ago in the morning, I was meditating. And suddenly, out of nowhere, up comes this thought. Having cancer is like being in an abusive relationship. And surviving cancer is like getting out of an abusive relationship, which means you're really hurt, you're afraid, you don't know what's going to happen, you're afraid that the abuser will come back, and sometimes the abuser does come back, and uh, it takes a long time to heal, and you're really exhausted, and your life is still determined a lot by that. So I cannot tell you how liberating for me it was to find this alternative metaphor that really explains in an incredibly precise way how a lot of cancer survivors feel and how I in particular have always felt about this. And think about how differently the medical community would treat cancer if that was the metaphor. Very correct. And I also only recently thought about something else that comes, where the cultural difference comes into the game again. In Germany, based on the health system that exists there, if you have anything like that, a cancer or any bigger illness, when you're done with it, they send you away for a rehabilitation, which can last anywhere from four weeks to six months. And all you do there is hang out at a nice place and you get behavioral therapy, occupational therapy, psychotherapy, anything you need. You hike a lot, you do some sports. They basically try to rebuild you as a human being and help you to regain your emotional and social and personal strength. None of that exists here. Let's talk about cancer number three in December of 2018. So December 2018, I felt that there was a very weird, hard, and somewhat raised, thicker part on my left testicle. I immediately knew this is cancer. So his primary care physician ordered an ultrasound. And sure enough, came back as cancer. And so everybody I talked to, including uh, oncologists, were like, well, it's actually looks like it's most likely a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma that just happened to start there. And it's most likely a reaction to the treatment that I had for my Hodgkin's lymphoma because that treatment is known to cause after 10 or 15 or 20 years to cause so-called secondary cancers. And usually these are either blood cancers, um, leukemias, or lymphomas, which is also a type of a blood cancer. The survival rate of a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma that starts in the testicles is about 
50% over two years, which means that half of the patients die uh, in the first two years of treatment. And that's an incredibly high rate. That's not something you ever want to have. And so I was basically like, okay, that's it. I have survived two, and now it's number three, and number three is going to do me in. And um, that's pretty much how I felt about it. And it was pretty rough. But it turned out to be just testicular cancer. And of course, I use the word just only to mean that it was the more desirable of the two possible diagnoses. Testicular cancer is highly treatable. But it took two months because I first had to go through surgery. And then it took another four weeks for the biopsy to come back. And so I, there were two months of me pretty much assuming the worst. When we were talking um, a few weeks ago, you were telling me about a German term that you couldn't really translate directly into English. Um, but it really is a great way to kind of wrap up this whole story. Tell us about this untranslatable <laughs> German term. Yeah, the term is actually a, a made-up word. Um, German has this amazing ability that it's very modular, so you can stick words together and create new words by doing that. A lot of the German words are very long. You can create an unlimited amount of compounds. The word that I came up with is Überlebenskünstler. The German term for surviving is Überleben. So Leben means to, to live, and Über is like the sur in surviving. So Überleben, surviving. So you're really good at surviving. And it occurred to Bernhard that surviving over and over is, as he put it, a kind of superpower. There is a German word that I always thought was really good at describing my approach to life, and that word is Lebenskünstler. And Lebenskünstler means you are an artist of life. So suddenly I put these two things together as my superpower. I am a Überlebenskünstler, which means I'm a survival artist. And again, this is about finding good metaphors. Uh, similar to what I explained earlier with the cancer as uh, being in an abusive relationship. It might not mean much to other people, but to me it means a lot to have that metaphor at hand um, to sort of think about how I'm dealing with all these really difficult things. It also is such a great explanation for how language, how, how a particular language can help you navigate and, and change your perspective. I know that I... I'm a slightly different person when I'm in Germany, partly just because of the linguistic issues and uh, the ability to explain and uh, to uh, talk about things with a different set of concepts that you have in a different language. It's why it's so important to keep human languages alive. When we lose a human language, we lose a way of looking at the world. We lose solutions to human problems. It Languages are... They're super so important, yeah. Super and and important. I also think this is another good example and a good reason for learning other languages and learning other cultures because when you do this, you learn a new worldview. You, you learn new ways to look at the world and to understand the world. Bernhard didn't just describe the experience of cancer for patients and their families. He described how culture and medical systems, and even language, shape our experience of illness, treatment, and recovery. 
I'm Jackie Wolf, professor of social medicine at Ohio University and the host of Lifespan. Thank you for listening to this episode. Adam Rich is our audio engineer, Olivia Stefanoff is our audio editor, and Adam and I are Lifespan's executive producers. Join us next month when our guest will talk about his addiction to alcohol. <laughs>